Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Nadena, and this is the show where we talk with inspiring founders and experts to get a scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with us is Jeff Roberts, co-founder of Outsetta. Outsetta is all-in-one membership software that gives founders tools to monetize their product, website, or a community. And today we're here to talk about their founding story, scaling story, and everything in between. Welcome, Jeff. It's great to meet you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Anna. Well, yeah. Why, why did I say it's great to meet you? We actually had a podcast with you before, and it was great. So um, after that, I actually went uh, and listened to quite a few of your podcasts because I wanted to get a scoop of what you're doing and how you're doing it because there was such a huge response to our uh, episode. And uh, what I noticed is uh, Outsetta is a tool for founders to go to market faster, right? To have an opportunity to just try out what they're doing and see if there is um, a response from the market. But Outsetta was building for over two years, right? Uh, just to get to an MVP stage. So why in this case, you thought that you have to wait and you have to absolutely have a working product when you go to market? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. I think it comes down to the market that or the markets that Outsetta plays in. So Outsetta is sort of this all-in-one tech stack to launch a SaaS business. And what that means is we are right in the thick of some of the most competitive software categories on the planet, to be frank. Um, we sell subscription billing and compete with Stripe. We sell CRM and marketing automation tools that compete with HubSpot. And if you're entering a market that is sort of pre-established and as competitive as those products are, uh, sort of an MVP isn't going to be good enough, frankly. You need a product that has some level of polish. And aside from that, Outsetta is just a big product. It is a payment system and a CRM and an email tool and a help desk. So we just had a lot of product to build in general, and we knew that it had to be of a certain caliber. So as a result, uh, it took two years to really get a functional MVP that we were ready to market and sell out the door. Right. And I also remember uh, one of the things that you said was once you actually went to market, the adoption was fairly or organic. So uh, I could see that if, you know, if you were building in public, right. But as far as I remember, you said you didn't really do that. So how did you manage uh, to, to get adoption in the end? Yeah, I think, uh, honestly, it was hard. <laughs> um, it took us about two years to, to build the MVP. And then between, so we're, first of all, we're six years in now, um, just to give you a sense of timelines. But uh, between years two and three, once we had that MVP and really first brought it to market, um, certainly the product, you know, acquired some early users, but it was very slow going. And I think that goes back to the previous comment about the MVP just needing to be at a certain level um, while the product was beyond what I would call an MVP level product in most other markets, the fact of the matter was most people that looked at it initially said, okay, this is sort of a average billing system or an average CRM or an average email marketing tool. And between years two and three, uh, we did not grow particularly quickly. The thing that has really helped the company grow more than anything else, more than anything we've done in marketing or sales or whatnot, 
is just the product maturing to the point where it is closer to feature parity with all the tools that we compete against. And I think that that's something that people sort of miss out on often. There's so much talk these days about the importance of distribution. And yes, distribution and marketing is important, but if you have great distribution on a mediocre product, you're gonna end up with a whole lot of churn. Um, and I think that ultimately a great product is the best marketing channel you can have. It's sort of the best flywheel in the sense that if the product is great, it's going to make the results from every other marketing activity that you do um, you know, that much more compelling. So, uh, don't, don't forget the product piece. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's a product led growth. Okay. So, yep. um, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Like, uh, I think once, once you have a really good product out there, people just start talking and, yep. uh, yeah, it, it, the adoption goes, uh, a lot better. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So that was a bit of a slow start, right? Uh, but like you said, it, it's also a very competitive market. So how did you make sure that in this competitive, very uh, ever-changing market, you uh, still had an opportunity to catch up with uh, your competitors? Yeah, I think there's, there's kind of two things that were important to um, sort of that agenda or that story. Um, the first one was we started out selling to founders of SaaS companies exclusively. And I think what we learned the hard way was those are people that are intimately familiar with software. They are very demanding buyers. Um, and it was just tough when we were targeting that audience. The thing that ultimately helped us most was I think by the time we got out, set it to market, there were a lot of SaaS founders who had sort of been there and done it before. And they recognized the inefficiency that comes with sort of the status quo way of launching a SaaS business where you're tying together five or different tools and writing all kinds of custom code on top of Stripe. And those particular people who had sort of lived through these challenges before saw out Seta and said, okay, here's a fast way for me to get started. There really aren't many other products that offer the set of tools that Outseta does. So being somewhat novel um, and really appealing to those people who had lived through the challenges that we solved before really helped us with the SaaS founders specifically. I think the other thing and what really kickstarted our growth in a bigger way, to be honest, um, is also looking beyond just technical founders of SaaS companies. And for us, that was getting discovered by the no code community. And what we found in the no code community was all of a sudden there was this sort of new group of founders, people that couldn't have built um, technology products before, frankly, before no code. And what they saw in Outseta was a perfectly integrated tech stack and being non-technical, they were people that didn't have the skill set to build the type of tech stack that Outseta provides out of the box. So we found an audience in them. Um, where Outsetta was even that much more valuable than to the initial target market of, of SaaS founders that we were targeting. Combination of those two things really helped us. That's that's great. And uh, uh, while you were talking, uh, I kept thinking that uh, your background is is in in marketing, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, this was it is right your first product that you co-founded. So. Yeah. How did you make sure that you learned or, or you knew from somewhere how these people think and how what they want, what they're looking for? Um, how did you navigate this, this new space? Yeah, it goes back to um, sort of our origin story. So 
the idea for Outsider was really born out of a previous SaaS company that I worked at called Buildium. And I was kind of the business user and my now co-founder at Outsider, Dimitri, was the CTO of that company. And as we started scaling, I was kind of pulling on his shirt sleeves and saying, you know, we need a better billing system. We need HubSpot for marketing automation. We need Salesforce uh, as a CRM. We need Zendesk for support. And I kind of lived through the challenges firsthand of trying to get all of those systems assembled and talking to each other and, and tightly integrated. And it was just a ton of time spent evaluating software products and then integrating software products. And I was not self-sufficient being relatively non-technical in putting any of those integrations together. I was asking you know, our, our CTO to spend time doing that. And he kind of threw up his hands at one point and said, you know what, I'm spending more time integrating software tools that our business relies on than I am building our actual software. Something is backwards here. All these SaaS companies need essentially the same tooling. Why hasn't somebody built kind of a, a starter kit or the parallel that we use a lot is what Shopify did for e-commerce. Why hasn't somebody done that for SaaS? So I think the way that I was able to sort of stay close to the customer was just living through um, the challenges of an early stage SaaS business firsthand. And I felt that even more acutely as a non-technical user. So when we started to focus a little bit on the no-code community, I said, you know what, this makes total sense. These are people like me that don't have the skills to build this tech stack. Let's enable them in a way that they haven't been enabled before. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Uh, and uh, you keep saying we were discovered by no, no code community. So how yeah. was this discovery done? Right? Uh, was yeah. it an SEO? Because I remember um, you majored in writing, right? I did. Yep. So and I still enjoy every blog post that you put out there. So was SEO your primary source of leads at that time? Yeah, SEO um, and content continues to be far and away our biggest source of leads. It always has been, um, although I can't say that I can directly tie that to how we got discovered. Um, frankly, we were kind of late to focus on the no-code community. I had had some people kind of chirping in my ear saying, you know what, Outsetta might be a great fit for no-coders um, for almost two years before we really got any traction in that space. That was a mistake of mine. Um, I think that I had kind of taken the startup advice of niching down and focusing on one specific target audience uh, to heart probably more than I should have. So it took us really struggling to target developers for a year or more before I kind of said, okay, maybe we should look at some other markets and, and see what's going on. And around that time, honestly, it had very little to do with me or any intentional marketing approach. Um, what happened was in short, a lot of people uh, started building on Webflow all of a sudden. Webflow really started to explode in terms of growth. And Webflow did not offer tools to integrate subscription payments or um, authentication tools, login functionality for Webflow sites. Outsetta happened to do that. So all of a sudden there was this population of people building on Webflow that said, we need authentication and payments. Where can we find it? And somehow, some way, Outsetta kind of got thrown into that discussion um, and we really got pulled into that market without much deliberate effort of our own. Okay, so uh, let's talk a little bit about um, about the way you scaled, right? Because mm -hmm. you, like you said, uh, you've been around for almost, uh, what, six years or yep. almost seven, right? At this point, mm -hmm. it, 
you started 2016. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what, what happened after? So first of all, I know that the team stays uh, pretty much the same, right? It's super small. Yep. Uh, so what changed in terms of innovation, how you innovate, how you bring features? Uh, did anything change from your slow start? Are you adopting new trends faster now? Um, I think really the, the biggest thing was just the product maturing. Um, I tell people all the time, like I try not to undersell outside. I think it is an exciting product. People are pumped when they see it usually. And we get this like, I can't believe this exists reaction. But at the same time, from the standpoint of like an innovative feature set, Outside it is very familiar. It is CRM functionality, it's billing tools, it's email marketing. There's nothing that is frankly incredibly novel about what we offer, aside from the fact that it's delivered in the same platform and that enables you to spend less time integrating tools and build a lot of workflows much more quickly. Um, so there were certainly things um, beyond the product maturing that started to fuel our growth. Um, all of the content efforts from the first two, three years of the company really started to kick in. Um, interestingly for us, we didn't do a lot of what I would call deliberate SEO, where we were targeting specific keywords and um, that kind of thing. A lot of it was just writing about our own entrepreneurial journey. And that doesn't work for every company, but in our target market, because we sell to other founders, uh, we found that people were sort of naturally interested in our story just as founders and bringing this product to market and whatnot. So that actually served as a customer acquisition channel for us. Um, there were a couple of partnerships that were really big. Um, we're partners with both Stripe and Webflow. Both of those partnerships drive us a huge percentage of our business. Um, and we also built out an affiliate program. So we pay out people for uh, referring business to Outsetta. And to your point, Part of our objective as a company is to stay intentionally small. And because we serve this market of um, bootstrap founders that, you know, by their very definition, don't have a lot of budget, we need to make sacrifices in terms of how we run the company to make it a, a viable business. And one of those is not having a sales team. So we don't have anybody that's dedicated to sales. We instead focus on people, finding people that are excited about Outsetta and incentivizing them to refer business to us. So between the content, the referrals, and these partnerships, um, that's really what's driven the majority of our growth to date. That's amazing. I think I think uh, this uh, also um, refers to the distribution channels that that you were talking about, and uh, I think it it just uh, works for absolutely everything. Uh, for your content, the, the way you d distribute your content, the way you distribute your attention to uh, target audiences, uh, it should all be in balance. So I completely agree with you. Um, but uh, so many questions, actually. Uh, um, first one, um, you are targeting bootstrapped founders, bootstrap mm -hmm. businesses, yep. uh, right? And you're also a bootstrap business. The previous uh, startup that you were involved with actually um, got some got some funds from VCs, right? Yep. So why in this case, uh, you decided to, to stay bootstrapped? Uh, does it um, work with your culture somehow? Or sure. is it made? Is it done deliberately so that you are also in this kind of um, not the same maybe, but familiar space with the founders that you are targeting? Yeah, it's a good good point. Um, so at a, at our previous company, yes, um, 
sort of when Outsetta was born and when we got the idea for the product in the first place, we were bootstrapping another business. Um, we were able to bootstrap that company to about six or $7 million a year in revenue. Then we did go the traditional VC path and raised a couple rounds of funding. And all things considered, we had a great outcome and a great experience. Um, Outsetta is in no way like a reaction to a negative experience with VCs. Um, but when we were looking to do something new, we had a couple ideas in mind that were really important to us. And one of the most critical ones was as we reflected on that previous SaaS journey, we enjoyed being a company of 20 people a lot more than we enjoyed being a company of 200 people. Um, you know, when you raise VC money, you sort of need to put the pedal to the metal and force as much growth as you possibly can. And with that usually comes an increase in headcount, an increase in inefficiency, frankly. And we just said, we don't want to be in that position. We'd like to stay small. We'd like to control our own destiny. And we actually think that staying um, sort of artificially small is a constraint that can help us build a lot of efficiency into the business. So we don't um, have like a hard cap on how big we want the company to be. And frankly, you know, we still want to grow a lot more than, than we've grown to date. Uh, but we like this idea of outset I should probably never be bigger than a 20 person company. And if we think that way from the get go, we're going to go out and try to attract the most talented people that we can. We're going to pay them uh, a, a very good rate. We're going to give them equity at a rate that they wouldn't normally get in a regular tech company. So we're going to do a bunch of things differently to attract a small but super talented group of people and see how far 20 people can take the company um, without needing to grow to 200. Yeah, and uh, we'll get to, we'll get to the culture that you're building within the team definitely because it's an amazing one, uh, and I would really love to learn more. But I also want to uh, to come back um, to uh, what you were talking about um, when when I asked you about the. The features that that uh, you're pushing now, the the way that sure. you're innovating and growing uh, the product, right? So um, I I know that you believe in dependability of the software. Yeah. So it, do you think that Outsetter is the ultimate uh, piece of software that is here to stay? And do you build it? Um, do you grow it to a certain point where it's sustainable? I. I I don't know if uh, I can say that uh, sure. about a software product uh, or is there something in your mind that in 15 years time, um, there is a certain point when maybe not an exit, but a certain metric that you would call a success and just uh, rest. <laughs> um, yeah. So there, there's a couple, couple things there. Um, first, first and foremost, um, Yes, outside is a super mission critical piece of software. Um, and that like that's a scary thing to some extent, right? All of our customers, their businesses are completely reliant on Outsetta, basically their entire and including our own business, by the way. Um, so we have to um, you know make huge investments in terms of the stability of the software, the security of the software, error monitoring procedures, all those sorts of things. Um, which frankly, a lot of bootstrap companies don't, and that's a huge advantage to them. So that is um, a challenging aspect of, of what we're building for sure. Um, 
I do think about Seta in a lot of ways as sort of like the ultimate software product, as you said. Um, and I, I think that the pushback that we most often get from people that are evaluating out Seta is you do these four or five things, you couldn't possibly do them all that well. Why would I not use more specialized software? And that's a totally valid objection. I would feel that way too. Um, but there's really sort of two ways that we combat that. The, the first one is we sell to early stage software companies. We don't need to have all of the feature parity and all of the bells and whistles that the tools that we compete against do. Typically those products are only fractionally used and a lot of those extra features are meant for companies as they get bigger and sort of move into more enterprisey customers. We serve earlier stage businesses, so we kind of just need to deliver the core feature that can get you off the ground, help you start to growing and help you run a small business. Um, so I think our feature set doesn't have to be um, quite as feature rich by, by default. The second thing I always come back to with people who have that objection was, okay, name your four favorite software tools, the best CRM, the best email tool, the best subscription billing tool, whatever it might be. If all of those were delivered in the same platform, would that not be considered a better solution? And the answer is unequivocally yes. Of course, we would rather have them all as part of the same uh, software platform. So I think for us, are we there yet? No, not necessarily. But if that is the vision that we're working towards and we truly believe that that is a better solution, that is something worth continuing to work towards. Um, you know, we've been doing it for six years. Um, we intend to keep doing it for probably another nine or 10 at least. Um, I don't know what the end outcome is for Outseta. We are certainly not out looking for an exit anytime soon. We've built pretty much every aspect of this business, assuming that we want to continue to operate it well into the future. Um, for me, there are some sort of rough goals that, that I would like to hit. Um, it's not so much around a particular financial outcome. It is much more of sort of a lifestyle outcome for me. But I think a huge success in my eyes um, would be if we can run a 20 person business and get to $10 million a year in revenue, um, that's going to create a situation that's a huge win-win for our customers, for our employees, for everybody. Um, so we don't have like any particular goals or path to get there, but that's something I've always kept in the back of my mind as, wow, if we could get to that point, I'd be really happy with that. That's an interesting point. I just I just recently started uh, thinking about it um, after I had a talk with uh, Melissa Kwan from eWebinar. Mm -hmm. um, so she, she was also talking, and eWebinar is also a bootstrapped business. And uh, that's uh, exactly what she said. Like, it's not about uh, like shooting for the stars per se, right? And getting sure. to this huge uh, generational wealth exit. It's about allowing yourself a certain lifestyle. And once you're happy, once you're comfortable, that's probably everything you need in life. So, um, yeah, one more thing. And, uh, uh, well, stop me or like, feel free to not answer. Sure. Uh, but, um, this is about the features that Outsetter has and, uh, sure. the dependability of it. Right. And, mm -hmm. uh, coming back to the fact that, uh, you are targeting or no coders, non-technical founders are a part of your target audience. Sure. Uh, so to, to what extent Outsetter is sustainable for a business? 
do I have to stay, like you said, a small business? Or if, for example, I have $10 million in revenue and uh, a million people hitting my website every month, can I still use Outsetta? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, In short, we are very purposely trying to serve the lower end of the market. Um, Frankly, we're at the stage right now where everybody is already trying to pull us up market to serve bigger customers. And we're fighting it because we deliberately want to play in the smaller end of the market. And the way that um, we sort of articulate that is we want to take companies from day zero Uh, to somewhere between five and $10 million a year in revenue. We think that's the customer journey that Outsider should be built to fulfill. That's sort of the journey that we've seen it fulfill before. Um, And frankly, the companies that we sort of, I'm not saying we directly compete against them, but for example, the HubSpots of the world, frankly, they want businesses that are doing $10 million a year and up. HubSpot themselves talks about sort of scale up companies today, And when you've raised that much money, when you're a publicly traded company, frankly, it's just not sort of worth your time to play in the bottom end of the market. So we're saying let's be the best solution there. Um, That does create some interesting circumstances within our business. Our very best customers will outgrow us, um, which is what you typically don't want in SaaS. But we think that in the time it takes to go from zero to five or $10 million a year in revenue, even in the fastest growing companies, that takes years and that's plenty of time for us to capture enough lifetime value to make this a viable business. So um, it is sort of an interesting predicament that we're in, but we've planned all aspects of the business to understand that we're targeting that early stage company and that some degree of our customers that become very successful will eventually move on and sort of assemble the perfect tech stack from other best in class tools. That's great. Okay. Uh, I think that that's a very mature and uh, deep understanding of, of what you're doing. And uh, uh, I, I want to now get into the culture that you're building inside of Outsetter. Um sure. So like I said, you, you have this vision of mm-hmm. the company, what it does. Uh, um, how, do you, how do you make sure that uh, you hire the best talent that's also compatible with your values? Yeah, it's a good good question. Um, so the way that we have tried to do that is through the sort of organizational structure of the company. Um, and certainly staying small is one aspect of that, but there were several other things that we've latched onto. The second one was, if we're going to stay intentionally small, we think that we need to hire really, really talented people. Um, we don't think, you know, in the context of a 20 person company, if half of the team was was junior, we would be able to sort of scale as efficiently as we want to. So we need to attract those people. And as we looked at the type of people that we wanted to attract, um, we said a few things. One, they need to be paid well. Uh, two, as you get further on in your career, generally, Um, I think it's fair to say, especially entrepreneurial people want some degree of autonomy. They don't need to have a boss that's, you know, cracking a whip, so to speak. Um, they, they want to kind of have free reign to bring their talents to work and use their, their talents without being micromanaged or anything like that. Um, and third of all, um, coming from like Naval Ravikant all the way down, um, 
everybody of this generation has latched onto the idea that how you build wealth is by having ownership in a business, actually having meaningful equity, not just some small stock options that are issued, as you see in a lot of tech companies, but the type of equity that a founder would have. So we came up with a structure uh, whereby everybody at Outsetta gets paid the same rate. Um, on the sort of cash compensation side, if you work full-time at Outsetta, you make $210,000 per year, but you can also choose how many days you want to work for cash compensation um, each week. So the other thought there is a lot of the people that would be attracted to working at Outsetta are entrepreneurial people that might have their own projects anyways. And we wanted to give them free reign to continue to work on other entrepreneurial projects to the extent that they want to. So if you work on it outside of five days a week, you make $210,000 per year, but it scales all the way up. So if it's a day a week, it's $42,000 a year. If it's two days a week, it's $84,000 a year, all the way up to that um, full-time plan. And you can kind of choose your own adventure. Outside of the cash compensation, we also wanted to give people the ability to earn significant equity in the business. So everyone at the company from the founders on down earns equity on the same terms and the exact same rate. So the way that that works is you can say, I want to work one day a week for equity or two days a week for equity. And your total ownership in the company is how many total days you have worked for equity divided by the total number of days all employees have worked for equity. So the idea is it's overtly fair. The percentage ownership you have in the company is the percentage of time that you've devoted to working for equity as opposed to everybody else. Uh, and what that means is everybody at Outsetta, is, we don't call everybody co-founders. There were three of us that initially kind of came together and um, started the company, but everybody's working on the exact same employment terms. And as of today, everybody out at Outsetta earns it or owns, excuse me, at least 4% of the business. Um, whereas in, you know, a lot of other tech companies, even like the CEO doesn't own 4% of the business. So everybody's got upside that's really significant. And I think that what that does ultimately is everybody acts as an owner. And we've also adopted um, this organizational design called self-management. The idea there is there's no bosses within the business. We hire awesome people they kind of gravitate towards where they can help the company. And they can do that because we give them all of the information on the business. There's 100% transparency with all employees. Um, and if they have all the information and they're incentivized as an owner, we can sort of trust that they're going to act in the best interest of the company and help wherever they're most able to. So as an example, this is all still relatively easy given our size, but I'm the only one in the company with a marketing background. So I don't do the marketing because my title is CMO or VP of marketing. I do the marketing because that's my skill set and I'm better suited to do that work than the other employees at the company. So we all just kind of gravitate towards where we can help. Um, we all are super, super aligned and we think we have an incentive structure uh, in place that, that really um, helps everybody act as an owner um, and operate with a lot more autonomy. Well, sounds like a dream. You know, I, I love the <laughs> transparency that you bring to it, uh, obviously. Um, but, uh, and, and, and I love that uh, you're talking about what you're giving to the people. 
right? So mm -hmm. I want to uh, I want to focus a little bit now on like what uh, you're looking for when you're hiring. Do you approach sure. people or do you have such a stream? Given that you know this yeah. whole information is out there on the internet, um, do you have such a strong stream? of resumes coming that you know you can find a necessary person just like that yeah this is um for for me this is one of the more challenging aspects about seta um i think probably like my biggest skill set or what i'm best at is building teams and because we're trying to stay intentionally small like i don't have that much opportunity to do that. Uh, and it's actually sort of frustrating to me. Um, like at this previous SaaS company, Buildium, you know, we did scale very fast. I was able to hire a lot of people. I think I developed some proficiency in that. And frankly, I enjoyed that. And now I'm sitting here and with this compensation structure and organizational design and all that, um, it's clear we've struck a nerve with a lot of people. We have people coming out of the woodwork that want to work with us that are super, super talented. And I want to work with all these people. I'm like, these are crazy talented people I would love to have on this team. Frankly, our success as a company, like I'm excited to push it forward that much more and that much faster because I want to add these people to the team. So we're in this weird spot where we want to stay small, but at the same time, like we're so excited about the opportunity to, to, build an incredible team um, that they're kind of in conflict with each other uh, a little bit. Uh, but ultimately, I think that's a good problem to have. Okay, everyone uh, asked about the first hire. I want to ask about the last one. Who was your last uh, hire and when? Yeah, our last hire, um, his name is Bernard. Uh, he is an engineer. He actually was um, the VP, the VP of engineering, and then the CTO at this other company we worked at previously. Um, we brought him on largely because he's just a super talented engineer, but he spent a lot of time um, at Buildium working on the backend infrastructure and security and the stability of the product and all those sorts of things. That was similarly a mission critical software product that entire businesses relied on. And we kind of got to the point where we had gotten enough traction at Outsider. We'd started to grow fast enough that we were like, okay, we have something here. We're going to continue to work on this business for a long time going forward. And we need to make sure that this platform is as stable as it could possibly be. And Bernard came in and has helped us make huge strides in that direction um, and was a really critical hire for that reason. That's great. Okay. So I want to focus a little bit uh, on you as a founder, sure. right? So. You started it, uh, you, uh, you were there for this first two years developing a product. Uh, I assume the team was even smaller, right? Yep. Was it just the three of you? Just the three of us, yep, for a while. Yeah, so you still scaled, right? Even if it's, uh, what, 15 to 20 people. Mm -hmm. So how, uh, how this changed for you? How did scaling change your uh, management style or the um, the way you see Outsetta and how it's structured? Yeah, the, the short answer is um, we still don't have the amount of balance that I would I would like us to. Um, we are an overly engineering focused team. And I think that is a result of building such a big product. We knew early on 
um, building something of outside of size and scale is not a trivial undertaking. And everything we talked about in terms of it taking two years to deliver an MVP, we've just got a huge feature set that we are supporting in the context of a very small team. Um, so pretty much everybody else at Outseta is focused on product in a major way, building the product, designing the product, et cetera. Um, I call myself the utility infielder of the company. Um, certainly I don't write code. I don't have that technical skill set, but I still am involved in everything. Um, I do sales, I do marketing, I do customer support. I do a lot of product management. Um, I'm very much like the face of the company at this point. Um, and I think for, for me, um, you know, as we've scaled up, I've sort of continued to be the lone person in sort of this customer facing role. Um, and I'm very eager to add more people to the team so I can get a little relief on all these business oriented functions that fall largely on my shoulders today. What's your favorite, uh, part of the work day? Good question. Um, I would say kind of going back to my, my roots, to be honest with you as a marketer, um, I feel like, frankly, we've neglected marketing for much of the last two years. Um, I've spent a lot of time on support. I've spent a lot of time on product management. Um, I've spent a lot of time just on onboarding calls with customers and migrating their data and getting them, you know, set up without Seta. Um, all these sorts of things that are sort of required to do in the context of a, a scaling software company, um, but aren't necessarily the most enjoyable things to do day to day, um, at, at least for me. So the stuff that gets me really motivated is everything around organizational design and building the team and all of that. Um, if I could think about that all day long, that's probably what I would do to be, to be perfectly honest. Um, and then outside of that, the, the marketing stuff, um, I felt like in the early years of, of Outseta, I was able to focus a lot on marketing and I sort of laid the foundation for sustainable growth by investing so much in content and SEO and affiliates and these partnerships that over the last couple of years, we've sort of coasted off of that early effort that I put into marketing, but we are getting to a point now where um, we just need more deliberate focus and more energy put into marketing specifically to continue to scale the company um, and sort of freeing up more of my time to do that work is um, something I'm excited about. And uh, part of the reason why I'd like to add a couple new team members uh, relatively soon. Okay. All right. Sounds great. Well, uh, everyone who's listening, you know, <laughs> apply. <laughs> Uh, okay, and uh, just a couple more questions. So something sure. that I always ask every founder out there, what's your biggest win and the biggest failure? Good question. Um, let's go biggest failure first. I would say the biggest failure is probably um, what I alluded to earlier, that we were a little bit slow to move into the no code space or at least pick up on the opportunity there. Um, as I said, I think it was well-intentioned. Like I, I was really trying to niche down on technical founders and founders of SaaS companies. But as I reflect on that, there was an opportunity cost. Um, <clears throat> there were other competitive products that started targeting no code builders sooner than we did that frankly weren't nearly as good or nearly as mature as Outseta. 
And they developed a lot of brand recognition in the no-code community prior to us even showing up. And I think we're still trying to catch up to that a little bit. We've made huge strides in that regard. But um, I think if I had been a little bit faster to pick up on the opportunity in no-code, we would probably be a good deal ahead of where we are today in terms of revenue and whatnot. So that's that's something of a failure or something of a lesson learned. Um, the other related one we talked about too, which is this idea that when you're in a competitive market, you need something better than an MVP. Um, I think we did sort of take our own advice there to heart a little bit, but I probably would have waited even longer before we really started marketing and selling in a significant way. Um, if you're selling to the audience that we sell to and you're selling something like email marketing software, or CRM software, there's just so many good products out there. You need to come to market with something that's pretty darn compelling early on. And I think we probably wasted that time between year two and year three trying to sell a product that really wasn't all that compelling. So those are probably the failures. Um, in terms of the biggest win, that's a tough one. Um, I would say for me personally, um, getting to the point uh, where I was able to work on Outset of full-time and Outset was able to pay me a, a salary that's livable and all of that um, was like the biggest day for me as an individual. Um, that, that took four, almost five years to get to that point. Um, and I was, you know, juggling jobs and doing consulting and all kinds of stuff to, to get there. So when that day came, that was like a huge exhale for me, not by any means that like we've made it cause we have a lot of work left to do and, um, one outsider to deliver rewards to everyone far beyond what it's delivering today. But that was just a huge day in the sense of, okay, I can work on this sort of in perpetuity for a long time going forward. Um, but at more of the company level, um, it's not one point in time, but I would just say when we really sort of doubled down on our organizational design and payment structure and all of that and sort of announced that and started marketing that a little bit, the response that we got is, is probably the biggest win in my book. Um, it was really motivating and really refreshing to see people respond to that and say, you know, wow, nobody else is doing this as an employee. This is so attractive. Like it's cool to see that someone is doing this and it's not just, you know, founders trying to retain every little scrap of equity that they can so they can get incredibly wealthy um, while everybody else doesn't. Um, I think really just seeing the response to that was probably the second biggest one. Did this decision also grow from the fact that you had to juggle jobs to pay for uh, the lifestyle that you were living um, to make sure that your employees are so happy they don't have to look for anything else just to you know to make ends meet yeah that that like that is the end goal for me um, don't don't get me wrong I want outside it to be a huge financial success that's important to me too I like I don't want to undersell its importance um, but I think most people in tech have sort of one or two objectives. It's either they want to get massively wealthy or they are truly a technologist and the technology that they're building is what lights them on fire. Um, I love that we build a software product that enables entrepreneurs. I certainly want to get wealthy as well. But what motivates me 
is to build a company that gives our employees the ability to live the absolute best lives that they can. Um, even if that's a relatively small group of people, if it's 10 or 20 people, I want those people to look at Outseta and feel fiercely loyal to the company because Outseta allows them to do the things that they want to do with their lives. And if we get to that point, you know, with a team of that size and they really look at our company that way, that's what motivates me at the end of the day. That's great. That's uh, beautiful. Uh, so the last question, bonus question, uh, what do you think is the most underrated technology right now? Oh man. Um, <clears throat> it's funny. I, I like everybody else, uh, have seen all of the tech trends that have come around in the last few years. Um, in short, I think very little of Web3 for a variety of reasons. I think Web3 has a lot of um, nice ideas around decentralization. And frankly, a lot of the ideas that Web3 sort of espouses are things that we're doing it outside of too. Like we almost run a decentralized organization in a lot of ways in Web3. You know, there's all this focus on DAOs and whatnot, but I think Web3 in short has been like the most overhyped, under-delivering thing you could possibly imagine that has obviously attracted all sorts of bad actors. Um, now we're looking at sort of the AI boom. I look at AI very differently. Um, I think we're certainly going through a cycle right now of just slap AI on it, on anything, and it's going to change your life and do the work for you. And um, it's, it's being similarly overhyped, but I do think that AI is going to go on to be this massively impactful technology once people figure out how to deploy it and what the right use cases are and all that. I look at it in a very positive way as opposed to Web3. Um, but while Web3 and AI have been sort of commanding everybody's attention, I really think the world has slept on no code. Um, and the reason that I say that is no code has enabled already an enormous amount of people to build successful businesses, digital businesses that never could have before. It showed up and made an immediate tangible impact on a huge population of people. And while people are quick to talk about Web3 and AI and how big the opportunity is, I would argue the opportunity in no code is just as big, if not bigger. Think of every person on the planet that doesn't know how to write code and all of a sudden they can build digital products in a way that they couldn't before. That is a massive, massive, massive opportunity that I think is just starting to take off. And ultimately, I think no code has been underhyped because the people in the tech industry, by and large, are technologists. They understand technology, they're developers, and no code's not that exciting to them because it's not enabling them to do something that they couldn't do before but it's enabling this whole other group of people to do something that they couldn't do before. And it's exciting for that reason. So it's a roundabout answer to say, uh, no code is the answer for me. And I think so many people have, are, are still sleeping on it, frankly. Wow, I get polar um, opinions on no code, but um, I think I agree with you. Uh, the only uh, thing that, that comes to my mind when I think about no code, uh, the same as when you think about AI, uh, is the fact that um, with no code and with AI, you have to know what exactly you want to see in the sure. end. Uh, okay, so yeah, with with ChatGPT right booming right now, and 
uh, you have to know what prompt to use in order to get the result that, that you're looking for. And I think sure. with no code and a lot of founders are still struggling with it, the problem is the same. You have to know what features you want there. You have to know yep. what kind of UX, UI you're, you want to get. Sure. So I think it's still a huge problem that uh, we need to solve. Yeah, there are there are two problems, I think, in no code um, that are sort of prevalent, or at least um, one of them is talked about a lot. The one that everyone talks about is can no code scale? Is no code just sort of this um, tool set to build something very basic and entry level? And I think it certainly started out that way. Um, and is no code as scalable as you know writing a software product with code? No, it's, it's still not. But there are businesses doing millions of dollars a year on, on no-code tools. I think it's becoming more scalable every day. And frankly, that argument just doesn't hold up with me particularly well. I think the bigger one, and, and more to your point, certainly the biggest thing I see every day as a challenge in no-code is you've still got non-technical people trying to do technical things. And no code sort of sets the expectation that you don't need to have a lot of technical know-how. You don't need to have a lot of technical knowledge to be successful with it. But if you don't understand basic technology concepts, you're kind of in a difficult situation. You're sort of driving blind. Um, you sort of don't understand um, some of the things that are needed to scale a business and scale your use of the technology in a serious way. And I think the no code community needs to sort of latch onto that and really invest in education on technical concepts, even for non-technical people. Um, but as, as that, um, you know, as the market continues to mature, I, I think I've seen no code already moving in that direction. Yeah, completely agree with you. Well, it's been great, Jeff. I mean, uh, another conversation that I immensely enjoyed. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you can. I mean, again, the level of transparency that you bring to the podcast and to everything that you put out there into the <clears throat> big old uh, internet uh, is amazing. So uh, thank you so much for, for doing that. Thanks for having me again. It was fun. Thank you. All right. Take care.